0: Hello everyone, welcome to the 11th episode of the Women's Startup Leader Series. In this series, key female ecosystem players from Bangladesh and beyond will discuss facets of engine investing and all things startup. In this episode, we have Angela Lee as Speaker and Nurul Rahman, CEO of Bangladesh Angels as moderator.
1: Excellent. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining. Uh, Angela Lee is the founder of 37 Angels, an angel investment network and training bootcamp for women investors. She is an entrepreneur and angel investor with a passion for education. She's also a consultant and educator and teaches strategic problem solving, entrepreneurial thinking, and executive communication at Columbia Business School and other institutions. Um, Angela, welcome to BAN. Thank you so much for being with us.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, You know, we like to start these conversations kind of, you know, starting with the person's background and so, just for the benefit of those in the room, you know, could you tell us about kind of where you're from, where you grew up, and I guess when you were younger, what did you aspire to be?
0: Wow. Um, Love that question. Uh, So I grew up literally all over, Um, I was born in Akron, Ohio, but I've lived in Taipei, New Jersey, Beijing, Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, Phoenix, New Orleans, all over the world. Um, So don't really know where I'm from, Um, but I can answer the, um, what I wanted to be when I grew up, which is I wanted to be two things. I think one thing is I wanted to be a vet. I think a lot of kids want to be a vet, you know, because you like puppies. And then um, oddly enough, as a relatively young child, all I knew I wanted to be a businesswoman, which is which is interesting. I think a lot of my dad's influence, and I wanted to wear a black suit, carry a briefcase, and carry a latte. And I have very distinct memories of wanting this at like seven, uh, which is an odd thing. But uh, I guess I guess a lot of that came true. Um, and so these days, I split my time um, between I'm mainly at Columbia Business School, so I mainly teach venture capital courses these days, and. Um, I'm also the faculty director for entrepreneurship at the business school. And then um, 37 Angels is an organization I founded about eight years ago. And we are focused on closing the gender gap in angel investing, which is really very, very relevant given today's conversation. And um, we're about a hundred investors. Uh, we have invested in just over 80 companies to date and happy to talk more about both of those things.
1: Well, it's it's funny because I think I think looking through your uh, portfolio. I think you did invest in at least one uh, pet food company. So indirectly,
0: <laughs> indirectly
1: you, you got. Yeah, it. and
0: actually, I was a like a. I volunteered at animal shelter for a while, and I was a veterinary assistant. So I've actually fulfilled both of those childhood childhood dreams, which is which is nice.
1: There you go. There you go. No, that's awesome. And um yeah, and you know, could I mean, everybody comes into this in in kind of different ways. But you know, and I also found the story of your origins into angel investing interesting as well. Uh, Could you tell us about how did you originally become an angel investor?
0: Yeah, so I became an angel investor accidentally. And when I became one, I didn't actually even know what the term was. So in 2008, by the way, great year to become an angel investor. um, One of my dear girlfriends um, had uh, written and directed a movie. It was called Hiding Divya. And it was a movie that was about increasing the awareness of mental health issues, specifically in the Asian American population. Um, Madur Joffrey was in it. I mean, it was very critically acclaimed. And I wanted more people to see this movie. Uh, mental health is something that's very important to me and that's affected you know, myself and my my, my, I should say my family um, very directly. And I and Asians don't tend to talk about mental health as much, and just oh, you're sad. You know, kind of grit, grit your teeth and bear it. And so I wrote a five thousand dollar check, and um, you know, lost all of it. But it the movie was critically successful, but less kind of commercially successful. And all of a sudden, I was a quote unquote angel investor, and so I started getting introductions to these meetings and on these lists, and I was looking at I don't know fifty deals a year, um, and investing in maybe one of them and realized that I wanted to learn how to do this. So in the beginning of 2013, I started 37 Angels for two reasons. The first was to have it grounded in education. So again, I'm a professor, I'm a teacher. And so I wanted to teach people how to do this and give people a safe place to ask the questions that I didn't get to ask when I was starting out. And then the second thing was I wanted to invest alongside other people that looked like me. Um, I uh, walked into rooms as a young Asian woman and literally got asked if I was lost. Um, got asked all sorts of crazy questions when 37 Eagles got started, and so I wanted to increase the diversity in angel investing as well.
1: And, and that's in the name as well, right? Maybe for the benefit of those uh, as well in the room, you know, what what, what what does the term, where does the 37, I guess, come from?
0: Yeah, when we started 37 Angels, um, only 13% of angel investors were women, and we wanted to close the gap from 13 to fifty.
1: Which is uh, which is in the. Uh, I like the fact that your mission is in the name, so you're reminded of that yeah. all every time you. you
0: Although of, it's never great to make people do math when you have to <laughs> <laughs> explain what your name means, but yes, it is right
1: there. you <laughs> in angel investing, sure. Uh, yeah, and so just you know, I mean, it's always good to just learn from different angel networks about their models and how they approach things, and I think you guys have a, a very interesting approach. Um, so. I understand the mission. You know, let's get more women into angel investing. Let's, you know, uh, get pair, um, you know, let's you know, uh, work on the gender gap in angel investing on one side. Uh, but you do invest in men and women entrepreneurs. Um, you know, and I'm just curious. You know, what um, you, you might have in the beginning said, okay, we'll we'll just only invest in women or women for women. How did that kind of how did that come about?
0: Yeah, a lot of it was around identifying a market gap. Um, There were a couple of organizations that were women investing in women, and there is a tremendous amount of um, stuff out there focused on the female founder, but there was nothing out there that was specifically focused on the female investor. And so it was a marketing gap. It was also, we talked to our customers and asked them what they wanted, and they wanted to just see the best companies. Um, The other thing that, was also interesting is that the data very clearly shows that as more women write checks, more women get funding. so in some ways we are very much supporting the mission of getting more checks written to female founders by simply having more women investors. It's a very direct one to one correlation outcome
1: and you know going more into the the details of the organization you know how does one um, you know, what, what's the process to become a member? Um, you know, what are the requirements, I guess, to be a member?
0: Yeah, so I can start with kind of legal requirements here in the U.S. Um, in the U.S., you have to be accredited, which means you're, you have a million dollars in investable assets or uh, $200,000 in income. Um, but much more beyond that, we are looking for a couple of things. So there's an application, and I actually personally interview everybody Everybody who wants to join. And we're looking for a few things, right? We're certainly looking for the capacity to invest. We're looking for value to be able to add to our portfolio companies. And we're looking for what I call the good egg test. Um, We have a very strong culture of efficiency, transparency, and helpfulness to our founders. And we are looking for angels who are going to embody that culture. And then I would say that 95% of the angels who join our network take our bootcamp first. And we can talk a little bit more about that where we teach them how to be angel investors. And so the bootcamp is probably 85% content on how to be an investor, but it's also 15% what the 37 Angels culture is. And so 95% of people start off with the bootcamp and then become a member after.
1: It's quite interesting that, um, so you're so involved in the, the um process of kind of vetting each and every person who kind of comes in um and yeah let's do talk about the boot camp because I, I did find that quite interesting uh you know as part of what you guys do could you tell us more about I guess what's covered on the boot camp uh, yeah and and how does that work side by side I guess in being a member or becoming a yeah. member
0: so we have two formats with for the boot camp uh, we have a two-day um in person obviously right now in person or over zoom excuse me So right now we have uh, a in-person or over Zoom, which is a two-day format. We also have an eight-week online format. So for folks who want to be able to watch the content at three in the morning or at noon, um, but that is paired with live webinars. And so the content's exactly the same. And if you scroll down, you can actually see the content. So we kick off with who's in the ecosystem. How do you conduct due diligence on a company? What does it mean to vet a team that's three people and they maybe have $10,000 of revenue? What terms matter, both from a financial perspective and a governance perspective? How do you value a startup, right? I'm sure a lot of you hear pitches and the company says, I'm worth $7 million. How how did they come up with that? And then if you invest $100,000, they raise a series A, a series B, and then get acquired, mathematically what happens? And so we walk people through that math. We then talk about portfolio strategies. So how do you think about managing a portfolio? Um, Thinking about your thesis, how many companies should you invest in per year? And then all of this is done in an experiential learning way. So what happens is you learn the content and then you immediately get to apply it to real deal flow where you write a diligence memo on a real company that's actually fundraising. And so you learn and immediately apply it.
1: And this this company, is that something you know this person. You know the mem- uh, the member participant is working on, or that you guys are working on.
0: We um, keep the boot camps very small. It's only eight, we only um, accept eight to ten people per boot camp because we want it to be very intimate, where they really get to ask questions. In terms of the diligence memo, um, we usually have four to six person teams, and it'll usually be one one maybe two new angels, and then three to four more experienced angels. So you are learning alongside people who've done this in the past.
1: Got okay. it. Um, and, you know, just also curious for, for you guys, uh, you know, as a network, so you, you have these membership fees, right? You have the boot camp fees. How do you kind of sustain as an organization? What's your revenue structure?
0: Yeah, so we charge forty five hundred dollars for the boot camp, and with the boot camp, you get one year of membership included in that price. And then a year after you take the boot camp, we ask you to renew, and it's three thousand dollars a year to renew, which is on the low side here in New York. I would say angel networks are between maybe three and five thousand dollars a year, somewhere are six. So we're trying to have a slightly more accessible price point because we obviously want to encourage more people, more women to join.
1: Got it. Uh, and do you ever take like carries on your deals? Do you ever put together SPVs and and you know charge a management fee for them? Yeah,
0: so we don't. Um, we've talked about it actually in our participation agreement. We're allowed to. We've just never kind of exercised that option. We've been talking about doing a fund, um, and you know something that I'll just speak about is as as you're solidifying your model as you're talking to other people, is to recognize kind of what model you want to have, right? So. An angel network, right? It's just membership dues all the way to to an end. There's a a subset of people selecting. And uh, carry does happen in those funds, and it's something that we're talking through. But right now, no, we do not take carry.
1: Got it. Um, But when you do invest together, you know, when you do these collective checks, if I remember, it was 100 to 200 or 200K, um, is that done through an SPV structure, or how do you do them?
0: We do not. So we are doing individual checks. So it's individual names on the cap table for a couple of reasons, Um, information rights. um, Also, I think people then get to see their names on the cap table, which can help from a networking perspective. Um, But the primary reason why we don't is actually legal fees. It's just very expensive to create an LLC for every single investment. And so we don't, and we're lucky enough to have a reputation with founders that they're fine taking, you know, six or eight or 10 names on the cap table from us.
1: And I see your team here, and also just curious if you know, this is something we're struggling with this, how do you automate, um, you know, your processes? How do you, or, you know, our processes? And what, what does your tech stack look like? I know you use Gust, for example, but could you tell us a bit more about what sort of um, tech tools do you use to kind of manage the network?
0: Yeah, so on the kind of deal flow management side, um, in terms of inbound deal flow a lot of the things I'm sure you're looking at AngelList, Gust, um, and then we really just use Google Docs right so we look at 2500 companies a year and we talk to probably 600 founders a year and so at the 600 level we have it in a Google Doc where um, we just take notes and I'm sure there is a more efficient way to do it, but that's that's what we're doing right now, and obviously I want to be transparent about that. On the um, term sheet management side, the we use Carta, although we're looking into Seraph S E R A F, and so we're actually in the middle of looking at our tech stack. So that's on the kind of deal management side, um, uh, and then on the more um, member managed side we have a we're looking into a job board which um, i want to say we're using getco although i don't quote me on that uh, we use mailchimp in terms of you know emailing our members we also have a newsletter that goes out to you know a few thousand people a week and then the last thing i wanted to mention is airtable airtable is something that we have like a member directory that we do in airtable so nothing super sophisticated we are starting to build out a more Automated communication channel, and we're looking at Zapier and Drip.
1: Got it. No, that's um, I was just only smiling because we we do most of our work on on Google Docs too. So
0: yeah, <laughs> but you know what? Um, we're again, we've been really seriously looking into this, especially on the portfolio IRR perspective, because our our spreadsheet is getting a little bit cumbersome. And I reached out to a bunch of people, and I'm I was shocked at how many people are using Excel and Google Docs. And people in venture capital too. Like I was, I was surprised
1: at that. Interesting. Um, I want to go. You know, you you talked about the screening process a little bit, right? So you go, yeah, exactly. you look at two thousand to twenty five hundred companies a year, and then you meet with six hundred of them. And then I understand, you know, you have these kind of bi monthly meetings where you you know you yeah. present eight of them, right, to the to the members. Um, and so getting from two thousand to six hundred, I guess to eight, you know, what is that process like, and, and what is the kind of criteria that you use?
0: Yeah, so you can see um, we have, uh, we have a team of investment associates, we usually have two or three. And they are going from 2500 to 600. So independently post, obviously a little bit of training with me, they're independently deciding who are we going to meet with. Um, And we roughly meet with one in four, it's not something that we pulled it fast too. So if, you know, sometimes you just have a really good slate and you meet with every other company in that bunch and sometimes you don't meet anybody in a group of 10. So we don't force, but over time it's been about one in four. And then um, we then meet, and when I say we, it's the entire investment committee, which is me and the two and three investment associates. So I'm on every single one of those right now calls. And we do a 20 minute call, which is fast, right? So we ask the founder to pitch for five minutes and then we ask them questions for 15 minutes. And 98% of the time, that is enough for us to decide, do we want them to have them pitch to our network? Very rarely we'll do a second call because it wasn't enough time, uh, but most of them it's enough to say, do we want them to pitch? When the eight pitch to our network, um, our angels vote on their three favorites. We go into diligence with them. We write a diligence memo. We send that out to all 100 members. And then the eight angels individually decide if they want to invest. Um, and so we don't force any sort of quorum. So we think you get the benefit of deal curation, the wisdom of the network, but you still have autonomy over what you invest in.
1: And what are elements of that diligence memo? What sort of things do you come yeah. up
0: typically? So uh, we look at the four P's because I like alliteration. So we look at people, problem, progress, and price. People is obviously the team, right? Who um, the founding team is, early employees, but also advisors. Problem is, are they solving a large problem? What does the competitive landscape look like? And then do they truly understand the problem they're solving? Progress is how much traction do they have? Um, And we're really looking for a repeatable customer acquisition process. And then finally price, the deal terms have to make sense. And so those are the four things we look at. I would say before, as we're going from the kind of 600 down to the few that pitch, we're really focused on the first three Ps. And then we only really focus on the deal terms once we're pretty sure we're going to invest.
1: Got it. And, you know, in these kind of, I mean, the, um, does a company have more merit or have more of a chance if there are, for example, if they're already doing a round or if they have co-investors in place, particularly if they happen to be VCs or?
0: Right in the current market, it it depends. So simply saying I've raised a million out of 1.5 million, we don't put a lot of credence in that. And the reason why is because there's a lot of money in the ecosystem right now. There's frankly a lot of unsophisticated money. And so just the fact that you've been able to raise, we don't really pay that much attention to that. Now, if your lead investor is a, is a VC that we trust or an angel network that we trust, that's a very different story. Um, but just having raised capital is not something that we pay a lot of attention to.
1: Makes sense. Um, and what are some reasons to say no to a founder? You know, What are some recurring reasons that keep coming up?
0: Yeah, so if I kind of go into the each of the Ps, um, from a people perspective, I would say Lack of domain expertise, especially on B two B. The data shows that founders that um, are starting B two C companies can actually be relatively successful without a ton of domain expertise, but with B two B, having domain expertise is pretty important. So that's probably the number one reason why we would ask on the people. And the second thing I would say is kind of lack of it factor, right? Which is, if idea is good, I've been pitched that idea ten times in the last three months, and it factor looks like different things for different investors, right? So one might be serial successful entrepreneur. We look for deep customer empathy. We're looking for grit and hustle, um, coachability, all that kind of stuff. And I would say that's probably actually even more important than domain expertise. That's the number one thing we look for. Um, on the problem side, we would say no if the problem is too small. So we will sometimes see. So for example, we looked at a company recently that was focused on. Um, teacher support software if the teacher was teaching autistic students. And the product was great, but it was very, very niche. And so that was something that a couple of our angels would do individually because they care about the mission, but it's hard to recommend that to the entire network, something like that. And then um, progress is that they don't know how to actually get customers. This happens sometimes where a founder says, we have 10,000 customers, but they have no idea how they got them, right? They had a random PR piece or, you know, one-off thing that worked, and we're looking for repeatable customer acquisition. So in that case, it's less no, but it's come back to us when you've kind of built that customer acquisition machine.
1: So the, the growth engine, so to speak.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: And so you're, I mean, I understand you're typically doing kind of seed rounds, right? Or you're part of seed rounds. Um, and, you know, you want these companies obviously to get to series A and, and just curious, you know, so the post-investment piece and, and the value creation part of it, you know, you mentioned a lot of in, your members are investing directly. Do they do they take that on or do you try to take that on, on, on a network approach as well? Or
0: Yeah. So we definitely take that as a network approach perspective. So uh, we have someone who has a portfolio support for us and uh, we do webinars, right? We'll, we'll pick a topic um, and it might be hiring and firing, it might be how to raise your series A, Um, it might be how to do PRs, whatever the case may be, that's one thing we do. Um, The second thing we do, and it's probably the biggest component is introductions. So I need to hire a data scientist. I need introductions to chief financial officers at hospitals, like whatever the case may be. So what we do is we basically get the ask from the founder, we send it out to our network. Sometimes we just happen to know, and we make a lot of introductions on behalf of our portfolio. In terms of advisory board and mentorship opportunities, that happens a little bit more organically. We do not force the founders to give us a board seat. We will often take them because we have value to add or we have a good relationship, but um, board seats and advisory board positions are more organically as there's a natural fit. Oh, and I should have mentioned deal syndication is another huge thing. We have a we have relationships with about four hundred investors, and so as you can imagine, when they're raising their Series A, we are um, pretty involved there.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, and just cur- you know, maybe we'll go back to the the portfolio a little bit, right? And and just kind of get some get a take on one second, sorry. Uh, can, yeah, um, and so just curious, you know, for for you guys, you know, what sectors have been, um, sorry, I don't know if you can see my screen. Um, it looked good to me. Yeah, okay, good. Um, what sectors have you guys been, you know, act, well, what sectors has, have been the most active in terms of investments, particularly yeah. in the last six to 12 months? And, and what do you think are, are those reasons?
0: Yeah, so what's interesting is that our investment activity was luckily very COVID proof. So our biggest sectors, number one is digital health. Not surprisingly, we haven't changed that focus in the last couple of years. Um, The second is the future of work. Um, And the future of work is kind of divided into two areas. One is supporting the non-traditional worker, right? Someone who's remote, somebody who um, is contract versus full-time, we've all been non-traditional workers for the last year and a half. Um, And then the second part of future of work is worker automation. And again, that has not changed. Um, We also, so those are our two biggest. um, Third and fourth areas are uh, CPG, specifically around health and wellness. Again, that's been very steady and very attractive. What we did see an uptick in in the last uh, six or 12 months was logistics tech. Logistics tech has always been something that we've been interested in. But given everything we're hearing right now about supply chain management, lack of data transparency in that, that is a space that we've definitely seen tick up, which has been really interesting. And then one which I'm personally in thinking about from a thesis perspective is investing in esports. Um, we're actually looking at a company right now which trains people on how to play esports better. So, much like we have training for football or for basketball or hockey, it's like that, But for people who play League of Legends, which is crazy, the millions and millions of people who are watching and the millions and millions of dollars that can be won in sponsorship deals or prize money. Um, and so that's kind of a new hot area that we're looking at.
1: And I know you've done some gaming investments before um, as well. Um, just curious, you know, going back to the original kind of question or, of male versus female, uh, going back to these 80 companies, what's, what's the ratio of male versus female led companies?
0: Yeah, so we actually track this very carefully. We track it at the deal uh, source level all the way down to our portfolio. And we are happy that we're seeing pretty consistent numbers throughout, which um, is good because it means that we're not biased one way or the other. So what applies to us is about one third female, two thirds male, and our portfolio reflects that.
1: Um, another question, you know, so we see these exits, right. Um, and so that's always great. Um, if you can, you know, I don't know if you can share, you know, what, what is a typical kind of multiples when exits do happen and and what's also the timelines of exits as well?
0: Yeah. So it's kind of all over the map. Right. So Alice, um, uh, so like the, so maz just happened. So I want to say maz was eight years. Um, but then some of these happened in two years, so um, it's a pretty wide range um, in terms of how long it happens. But yeah, we we have a couple that happen in like the two to three year timeline, and then a couple that happen in like the three to five year timeline, and then a couple that were more like the six to eight years. So, and we have had uh, this is actually a little bit out of date. We've had twelve exits, yeah.
1: And and these are typically, do exits happen because of secondaries or do they happen because of full-on acquisitions or?
0: So all of these are acquisitions. So you can see the logo is the startup and then down below is who acquired them. And Maz and Crosscheck are hot off the presses. So we are um, still updating that as it becomes public.
1: Got it. Um, I guess, you know, I'll just kind of ask, um, you know, I I did want to just kind of you know ask questions on a couple of companies just to kind of understand a little bit more about.
0: Can I actually um, just respond to your last question okay. really quickly? The one that is not on the website, which should be, is Alette is a baby monitor company. They just IPO'd through a spot.
1: Oh great. so that one
0: was really nice. So it's our it's a it's, it was a billion dollar exit for us. That's oh, a nice
1: one. Amazing. That's amazing. That's awesome. Um and yeah, so just curious, you know. So for example, you know, there's a company here. Hey Jane, uh, mm-hmm. providing, you know, it, it's very timely because it's providing um, online abortion services, right, to, mm-hmm. to women. And, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's going to be a growing sector, particularly in light of what's happening, you know, around the country. And I've noticed that there's a few companies kind of doing, you know, working in this space. So when yeah. you have a potentially an emerging sector and you've got multiple players, how do you make your decision on which company to back?
0: Yeah, so in that case, it's probably... You know, eighty percent founder. So the founder is a rock star. She just she knows the space really, really well. Um, and what you want to look there for there is demonstrated ability to be agile in the space and understanding of the regulatory space. But we look for founders who are really good at saying, okay, there are four potential outcomes here. Right of what might happen from a regulatory perspective. Here's how I'm going to respond to each of them. Here's how I have responded. So she was incredibly good at being agile about the regulatory space, and given how sensitive this topic is in particular, right? We're going to ask a lot of questions around, like, like why did you choose this word, for example? Because. Um, Some of these words can be a little bit more inflammatory and some of the words can be a little bit softer. And so, so much of diligencing a company like this is about digging into the founder's brain and saying, you know, how does she think? How does she respond to challenges? And uh, does she get the regulation?
1: One last question I forgot to ask. you know, So when you do these rounds, do you have a tip target dilution in mind? Uh, You know, or does it really depend on a deal by deal basis?
0: So I guess we have a valuation target, which infers a dilution target. And so typically we're looking at companies, um, our sweet spot is, so it started off, right? It's obviously been growing. So our sweet spot for where we invest from a valuation perspective right now is probably between like six and $9 million in valuation. And so that implies a certain dilution, um, and it's more that we're looking for companies that aren't overvalued. We are trying to find fair valuations, which is getting harder and harder with each passing day.
1: So that implies, I guess, like something between two and a half to uh, 5% of a company. Um, And are you doing safe notes or are you doing equity rounds?
0: So in terms of um, priced equity, convertible notes and safes, right now in New York City and, which probably 65% of our deal flow is from. Uh, We're seeing probably a third, a third, a third between those. So we invest in all three and you basically have to because otherwise we just would have to pass on a lot of deals. We would never invest on an uncapped safe or an uncapped convertible note. But if the cap is fair, we will absolutely invest.
1: Makes sense. Uh, And What is your opinion on the NFT space and blockchain companies? I'm sure you get this a lot.
0: I do. So my opinion is that I like to invest in spaces that I know and it is not a space that I understand very well. Um, And so, and I mean, the next question is, is crypto overvalued right now? I have no idea. Um, So we are not looking at that space. Now we are looking at some um, companies that are at the application layer on top of blockchain.
1: but we have not yet pulled the trigger on anything. Got it. Anybody else have questions? Feel free to raise your hand or type in the chat box. Otherwise I'll keep going through my questions. i have got a couple more. All right, while we wait maybe, um, and you could feel free to unmute yourself as well. Um, I'll just ask a few more, right? So, you know, one question. uh, Yeah, just, you know, for, I don't know if this is too much of a, I mean, if the the question is a little too kind of, if it's not specific enough, but I mean, we, from your perspective, right? So, okay.
0: yeah. So, in terms of a founder preparing for investment, uh, a couple things. So, one is to make sure you're approaching investors at the right time. Um, and so, uh, I would say that for a seed stage round, these days you do need to be post revenue. And again you have built that customer acquisition machine. So you know your customer acquisition costs, you know your customer lifetime value. I would argue when you know that ratio and you have six months of customer data, that, that might be the right time to raise to, to go after a seed investor. If you're going after a series A investor in the US, it's typically like a million dollars in annual recurring revenue. So uh, that is one. I'm also gonna actually share a pitch deck. So this is kind of a pitch deck template that we like to use um, or recommend, I should say, to founders. So you're, you're welcome to take a peek at that. Um, and then the other thing I would say is to know the investor. I think what's frustrating as an investor, like we have FAQs on our website and it very clearly says what we're looking for. So when a founder pitches us that clearly hasn't read those FAQs, I think that's a little bit frustrating, or if they haven't read them, at least before we get on a call. Um, and then the last thing I would say is really understanding your customers. The more you know your customers, the better. Um, as investors, we will trust that you understand the market you're
1: going after. Uh, thank you very much. Of course. Another question, Please feel free to unmute yourself, introduce yourself.
0: Uh, uh, hello,
1: Angela. Uh, this yeah. is Rafi. And uh, we are building a retail tech solution. So currently, we're doing our pilot testing in Bangladesh. And uh, just in a simple area and testing our app and uh, within a 100 customer space. And, uh, few retailers just trying out the products. So for a raising pre-seed, what would be your suggestions? And who, who would be the like the good go investors to reach out to?
0: Um, so one resource I can share um, is uh, so so one question is around geographically, where should you fundraise from? And our recommendation is to fundraise from the markets that you're targeting, right? So if you are targeting um, Bangladeshi uh, customers, then I would raise from local investors. But if you want to go into the U.S. market, then it's a good idea to get U.S. investors um, because they can help you. So that geographically, that's what I would say. And I'm actually looking for my list of pre-seed um, investor resources, and as soon as I find that, I will. Here we go. Um, This is a list of pre-seed funds that um, are good people to go after in terms of that first round of funding.
1: Amongst your network of investors, how do you come to a decision regarding valuation and, and how long does it take from listening to a pitch to writing a check?
0: Yeah, so regarding valuation, that's less something we rely on our angels for. It's more the investment committee. So if it's pitching to our angels, we only have out of 2,500 companies, we only have 40 to 50 pitch to our angels. So if they're pitching to our angels, we've already vetted them. The valuation is fair. How does the investment committee come up with it in terms of what's fair? There are a couple of things we look at. One is called the risk factor summation method risk factor summation method if you want to google that do some homework and that is looking at all the different risks that a founder could have and um, kind of coming up with an evaluation that way another one is called the venture capital method and the venture capital method is saying what do i think this company will get acquired for and then what do i need to make in terms of my multiple and it's usually 10x So if I think they're gonna get get acquired by Amazon for $100 million, well then today they're worth $10 million. And the most common way, which is how we tend to do it's just by knowing the market, right? At this point, we've seen 20,000 pitches. And so we know the market pretty well. And so I'm able to look at a software company, be like, okay, $8 million feels, feels fair for the industry that you're in and the traction that you have and the founding team that you have. And then for this food company, it feels fair that you're a $5 million company for all of those different reasons. And so a lot of it is gut driven at this point, but I would say if you're newer, look up risk factor summation method, look up VC method, and you can also look up the scorecard method. In terms of how long it takes us to get from listening to a pitch to writing a check, we promise four weeks. So we promise to the founders that from pitch to funding decision is no more than four weeks. And it's one of the reasons that we get the quality of deal flow that we get. I think a mistake that, angel investors make or angel networks make, I should say, is they're very, very slow in getting back to founders. And that will turn founders off in terms of pitching you in the future.
1: I've got a couple questions for you, right? So one is just, you know, towards that 37 or towards that 50% goal, you know, how do we get more successful women or how, you know, how has it been for you in terms of just getting more successful women to become angels, you know, getting them into the fold Uh, in any advice you might have for us in in trying to create that ecosystem uh, in in Bangladesh. And the second one is, uh, yeah, maybe we'll start with that one.
0: Yeah, so um, I uh, am admittedly a little bit biased here, but I really do believe that education is the solution to a lot of things. And um, I'll give you a non-biased data-supported answer to that, which is that the data shows that women um, and people of color are less likely to apply to a job that they're underqualified for. I'm just a lot of you have seen the study, women need to check you know, nine out of the 10 boxes in the job description, men need to check maybe five or six in the boxes. Um, we are all underqualified to be angel investors, right? Because we're investing in nascent sectors in companies that have very little traction and it's a brand new evolving space. By definition, it's always innovating. And so women are less likely to put their hands up and say, I'm qualified to be an angel investor, which is why we really started with the bootcamp to say like, you actually know more than you think. And here's a framework for how to think about it. So I think education is certainly one. Um, The other thing is networking community, right? So the data shows um, over and over again that when there are women at the front of the room, the movement like, oh, well, I can see myself in that way. And so, you know, a fun fact was I teach venture capital at Columbia and my class is usually about a third women. Um, And when a man teaches the same course, the class might be a fifth or a sixth woman. And, you know, we Higher investment associates, and we have a disproportionate, we have something like 35% of the people who apply to work at 37 Angels are Asian. it's because I'm Asian, right? And so um, who's at the front of the room saying like, that person looks like me, I can be like her, I think is a huge deal as well.
1: Um, and then the second one, you know, there are, uh, for those in the room and, and for those who might be listening in the future, um, you know, what sort of um, advice you might have for young women who aspire to get into the space, you know, be, become angels, VCs and, and tech entrepreneurs, particularly advice that worked for you?
0: Um, I have a couple pieces of advice. The first is to move from consuming content to creating content. What I mean by that is a lot of us who are interested in the space, we read voraciously, but you read passively, you're in bed and you know, you're on, live on the couch and the next day you don't really know what you read. And so start creating content, meaning go read seven articles about future of work and then write a paragraph. What do you think about that? You could tweet about it, you could write a LinkedIn article. Don't send it to anyone, just have it for yourself in your page of notes. All of a sudden you're chewing that knowledge and developing a perspective in a much more thoughtful way. Similarly, for those of you who are out there hearing pitches, start to like keep a little journal and be like, oh, I really like their people. Mm, Don't really like the problem they're solving, but their progress is really, yep, I I would invest. And you can start to really force yourself to be making decisions versus just passively hearing 10, 20, 30 pitches. Um, And if you wanna put your money where your mouth is, there are equity crowdfunding sites. Um, Rocket, or is it Republic? I forget which of the two it is you can invest for $50 into a company. And so you can start to practice that muscle before you maybe write a, you know, 10 or $25,000 check. So like kind of chewing knowledge and digesting it and then um, starting to make decisions that feel like writing a check. So the very first time you write a check, you feel like you've done it before.
1: Excellent. Um, Angela, I can't thank you enough. And and we'd love to kind of keep having you as a, a mentor um, and yeah. inspiration for us as we kind of move in our process. But thank you so much for taking some time out of your uh, busy schedule, and uh, you know, looking forward to doing more work together in the future.
0: I love that. Thank you for convening a great group.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much.